Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I guess it's just knowing that there are a lot of good people out there who care about the same kinds of things that I do. And so when I come away from a meeting like this, that sort of reinforces my own commitment and energy to go out and do that, because there are people, obviously, who don't care. Forty women donate to an informal giving circle and get together each month to debate which charities receive the money. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. the Hestia Fund, named for the Greek goddess of the hearth and domestic activity. The 40 members, all women in the Boston area, gather once a month to discuss important social issues with a focus on the needs of low-income women and children. But their purpose is more than to participate in a freewheeling discussion of current affairs. To attend, you must commit for at least three years to donating annually to a financial pool. The fund can now count on contributions of more than $200,000 a year. And the aim of the discussions is to decide which charitable organizations the money should go to. It makes for lively conversation about heartfelt concerns and personal priorities. This is so rich to be involved with people who tell these stories, who sort of spill their guts about how they're growing and feeling about a subject that may be brand new to a lot of people here. So uh, philanthropy is, um, is new to a lot of people in the group and not new to others, but I bet they're looking at it through new eyes now. Susan Prem conceived the Hestia Fund and founded it in the year 2000. A former Pan Am stewardess turned social worker, she became fascinated by the power of philanthropy to effect social change. I had um, been sort of seeking a third career. I was sort of looking at getting private, small private foundations together to do this same thing. In other words, to pool resources, financial and intellectual, like-minded organizations, to make a bigger impact in one field. And that was just no fun. 
I mean, I used to go in 1999 to a lot of seminars and workshops in Boston where the, the subject was philanthropy, and there were a lot of very well-known, large, traditional foundations there. And I can't remember any creative ideas. I really can't. And some people in this group went with me to a couple of those, and we didn't get anything out of it except, oh, we want to do it differently. We want to go out and find some real innovative talent that's out there trying to do something in a community to reach some people uh, who might not be reached, who aren't being reached otherwise. On a cold morning, about 20 fashionably attired middle-aged women are chatting over coffee in the foyer, living room, and kitchen of a luxury apartment with large picture windows overlooking downtown Boston near the Common. In a sense, it's an exclusive club of do-gooders. They've limited their membership to about 40 to make sure the conversation remains intimate and cozy. But there's a steep financial requirement to join. Each member must commit to contributing $5,000 a year. Linda Nelson is an avid mountain climber and former TV news anchor living in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm the treasurer of the group, so I sometimes think this way. We, we're giving away $205,000 this year. And if we were an endowment, we would have a corpus of $4 million to be giving away 5% of our, of our funds. Um, and so I think while we have the bang, we have the impact of a $4 million endowment, and we create that, we make that up every year out of our own commitment and our own decision and our own energy. It's not just sitting there waiting for us to use it. It's a real living thing that we have to recreate, and I like that. To keep their group simple, they've decided to forego the formality of incorporating. The fund collects each member's annual donation and disperses the sum in its entirety that year. Grants currently are focused on after-school programs and have supported the salary of a girl's athletic coach and field trips for a maritime curriculum. Unlike most charitable foundations, which invest their assets in the stock market and then give away a portion of the interest, Hestia members do not approach their task as if growing a financial portfolio. They're making a social investment and want their money transmitted promptly to recipients in need. When the Hestia Fund women hold their formal meeting in the living room, a private discussion they asked us not to record, they bring in experts on the needs of low-income families, and they deliberate about effective ways to help. Cassandra Gordon is a travel writer and photographer. This was a stretch for me to join uh, the Hestia Fund. Um, a financial stretch? A financial stretch. Um, the um, founder of the fund nailed my door shut and would let me come out until I said yes, which I would have said anyway. Um, I, I am very interested on all levels in group dynamics to see how people interact. And I do, I like to hear different views. And I find that um, I keep an open mind when I hear those views and I can be swayed. I want to be swayed. I don't want to come in with hard and fast values. Um, I want to hear what the other person has to say and I want to see whether I can incorporate that in my own views. So can you give us a position you may have arrived at through that discussion process? Yes, um, I, I was 
asked to, uh, to sit on the Grants Committee, and uh, which is a subcommittee of, of, of Hestia. And uh, in reviewing uh, the grants, one of them was a program that through teaching young inner city children to play squash. I said I didn't believe in funding a program to teach children, inner city children, to play squash. Squash to me is an elitist sport. You see these men walking around in town with their little, you know, suits going off to the squash club to play, you know, to be competitive in the afternoon where they've been competitive in the morning. Uh, somebody else on the committee said she thought that anything that was learned was a value. That you learn things playing squash, not just how to play the game, but you learn something in the, in the doing of it, in the teamwork of it. And I'm not so sure I changed my mind, but I certainly respected that view. And, I, and that's what I want to do. I want to hear what other people have to say. So part of your motivation here is not just giving financially to something that's worthy, but also to broaden your personal horizons. To broaden my personal horizons, I raised a large family in a very blue-collar community. Um, and my children grew up with a lot of these children who were in these programs. We lived in that community because at the time my husband had a business that was based there. And so I, my children, you know, interacted with these, with these, with these other children. And I often wonder whether because they had the opportunity to go to private schools and so forth, that perhaps they should have lived otherwise, lived in other areas where they would have been with everybody kind of in their own ilk. I don't believe in it. I believe in interaction, and um, I want to do that myself. Um, one of the experiences that I had is in the site visits that we went to a uh, organization that we are going to fund that um, asked young kids who look like rappers, young, you know, to get up and give tours, get up in front of the public and give a tour. And uh, you know, these, these there were men, boys and girls in the program, but the boys were kind of slouching in the chairs with the keychains and all they, you know. And when we got on the street, they just lit up, and I was glad that I was there and I could hear it. The organization is called My Town, housed in Boston's South End. Since 1995, the group has provided youth-led, two-hour historical walking tours of the neighborhood for school children, tourists, and anyone with an interest in local history. We are walking up Massachusetts Avenue towards um, the Orange Line, towards Mass Ave Station, and the Martin Luther King home is about one house away from the station. Um, Dr. King first came to Boston and lived in Boston from 1952 to 1953. He was getting his PhD in theology from Boston University. He then went to the South and did what it is he's now famous for, which is leading the civil rights struggle in the United States. And he returned to Boston in 1964. We hire high school students, and they're ages 14 to 18. They attend public schools around the city, and their job is to research their family and neighborhood history and teach it to people by giving walking tours and slideshows and public presentations on the history of the city. Executive Director Carolyn Crockett founded My Town in 1995. Through a period of about 18 weeks, the young people 
do their first exploration is really about themselves, about their family, their family history. They do a second exploration that's primarily about their neighborhood. They do a third exploration that's about finding and gathering information. And the fourth exploration is all about sharing it. It's at that moment when they're actually telling someone that they're able to realize the power of it because the reaction of their audiences, adults and young people, when they say, oh, okay, this is really a big deal, or oh, I see why it was so important for me to make sure they understand this fact or this event or this building. So it helps them understand the importance of it. 16-year-old Dwight Pfeiffer has been a youth guide at My Town for more than a year. Today he's accompanied by another youth guide, Monique Carvalho, as well as Cassandra Gordon of the Hestia Fund telling visitors about landmarks, like the brownstone where Reverend Martin Luther King lived, makes local history come alive. It definitely brings the civil rights struggle to Boston and makes it a bit more personal, because growing up you hear about Dr. King, but at some point he begins to um, become this idea rather than an actual person. And it seems a bit remote, and it seems as though it's something that doesn't really connect to your life. So I guess by knowing that he lived here in Boston and maybe four blocks from my actual house, it makes it much more personal and it definitely brings him to um, a more personal status. And it just makes the whole civil rights struggle and era more personal. Have you ever been inside the building? Um, no, today it's rented out as an apartment building. So it's a residential home that we don't enter. <laughs> or you might get into serious trouble, huh? Yes. Cassandra, what is your experience when you hear these learned young people give you the real history of the South End and this interesting neighborhood? Well, I'm just filled with pride uh, as I listen to them. I um, had a chance to talk with them before we go on the tour, and I see them inside my town uh, where they're trained, and they came out here and they come alive. Um, they respond, they are so proud of this tour, and I've just enjoyed it, and I've, and I've learned too, and that's what's, that's important too. I've learned so much about my city uh, from these young people. The Hestia Fund learned about my town from a consortium of local grant makers which knew of the fund's interest in after-school programs. Unlike many charitable gifts which are obtained after the grant seeker comes hat in hand to the funder, this was a case of the donor approaching a potential recipient out of the blue, Carolyn Crockett of My Town. I think it's certainly different that they initiate that conversation. It's also different that it is a group of people who are really concerned about an issue or trying to find out more about issues or the need of people in um, different communities and that they they really take responsibility for learning more about it. They come, they want to know, they want to get to know your program, they want to get to know you, and they want to know what you really need. So that is unusual because what, what generally happens is that a foundation has identified what they feel like you need or what they feel like they want to fund. And that year, they may be most interested in funding uh, computers or funding websites. And maybe that's not what you really, really need that year. It could be helpful. But Hestia allows you the opportunity to really 
dream a little bit and say what you really need, not what you think Hestia wants to hear that you need, but what could really make a difference in your organization and what could really allow you to have the impact that you want. So what Wonderful. did you tell them that you currently need? Um, we talked about the fact that what my town really needs is to let folks know we're here and that if there is a way to increase our visibility and our marketing, um, that would be of tremendous benefit to our organization so we can get as many people in the city um, on our tours as possible to let visitors come and partake of what we have. So just allowing us to share what we have. The Hestia Fund is part philanthropy, part social network, and part educational seminar about the needs of society. When Susan Prem launched her giving circle with nine friends, the aim was to establish a forum where women, sometimes overshadowed by their husbands' charitable donations, could become more comfortable with philanthropy. Here she's seated with other members around a kitchen table. We had 20 or 30 worthy causes, and it was just a brainstorming. Every woman put down what she wanted as an area of interest. <clears throat> Most had to do with children. Some had to do with just women. And I believe the way we came to that, um, we, didn't we do our point system? We did where we gave everybody 10 points, you know, like they would do in college. And uh, we had all these uh, causes up on a board, and we went out and gave them points, and we whittled it down to three items, scholarships, um, mentoring, and after-school time. And um, then we did our point system again. Well, we did research on those three areas. And we mostly found that mentoring was absorbed by the after-school area. And we ended up with... Um, through our consensus decision-making, which we do on everything, we ended up with uh, the after-school time being the winner. Why is consensus the method? Well, it was a uh, way we started. Uh, we thought it was very uh, women-like <laughs> to, to run something <laughs> by consensus and not be taking votes and <clears throat> not having somebody dictating what we did. and. That way, everybody could feel really part of the decision-making. It's, and it's wonderful for each of us to hear the other woman's voice and to hear what every woman out there in the room and the group is feeling and thinking about the issue that we're thinking of at the time. I know that I'm, I'm always in awe when I leave these meetings of these women and what these women are able to do. And I sit listening to the conversations, and I'm always surprised and interested and informed by what I hear, you know. I think some of us joined up because a friend asked us to, and we didn't want to let that friend down. But then we got involved in the group and something sort of magic happened. Linda Nelson. Um, for me, what happened was when I went with a stranger, a woman I didn't know, a lovely woman, but I didn't know her, and we went together to, uh, to view or have an experience of one of the, the possible grantees. And together, the two of us, uh, strangers to each other, had at the same time this amazing experience of getting to know a piece of Boston that we would not have gotten to know any other way. And that bonded this woman and myself together. 
And so now it's beyond just my saying yes to a friend originally. Now I have another connection and that just keeps growing. Most recently, I went with one of the Hestia members out to Dorchester to look at uh, the cyber shop. And this is a working office where teenagers come and uh, learn to use very sophisticated office machines, uh, most of them in the duplication kind of process. This is in a working class neighborhood of Boston. Yes, uh-huh. And these are, these are very uh, charged up kids about this after school program. For one thing, they're earning a, a bit of a salary. And for another, they're greeting clients and they're taking clients' orders for uh, replications of, of graphs or documents. And I gather that this gives you entree to an organization of the people who operate it, to the workings of that organization that you otherwise might not have. Oh, that's certainly true for me, David. I, I would never in my life have visited the cyber shop if it hadn't been, been for this. Um, I don't get to Dorchester all that much, so this was pretty, pretty special experience for me. I think up till now, very often we've all made charitable donations because we've had friends that have been involved in them, and you know we go to benefits because we have friends that are sponsoring them. Hestia member Lynn Daly, a mother and homemaker in Weston, Massachusetts. And one of the things that interested me was not only to leverage my personal financial commitment, but really was to get to know better what I was contributing to and to make the decision. Why was that important to you? I think because I'm at a point in my life where up until now I've been focusing on my family and my children. I'm looking towards the future and saying, what am I going to focus now? And it's really an education, a learning experience. I mean, a lot of us have the experience of receiving solicitations in the mail, and it can at times seem like a very distant experience. But one thing I'll say is a lot of the organizations that we're funding are not at the point where they can afford to send you those, you know, three, four-color brochures. That, for me personally, is one of the aspects that interests me. We do fund more well-established um, organizations as well, but it's really a chance to get to know those organizations that, quite frankly, can't afford to send me those brochures in the mail. And that, I would say, is one of the major, major appeals of the Hestia Fund, is to learn about something that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to and give them a chance to become one of those organizations. So taking risks. Yes. Members of the Hestia Fund, with its minimum donation requirement of $5,000 per year, are mostly women of means. Although other giving circles operate at a much lower level of financial commitment, sometimes as little as $10 a month. But regardless of the dollar amount, the act of donating what one can spare to charity inevitably raises questions of personal values and social justice. Hestia member Ellen Harris, a resident of Boston's classy Back Bay section, gives a lot of her time tutoring and mentoring. The thing that is most important to me in whatever relationship I have is respect for the other person. And I think sometimes charity, when one takes the position of giving to others who are in need, it isn't always from a respectful, reciprocal 
position. And I think social justice to me says I meet the other person, um, whether it's the rapper who, you know, maybe doesn't look the way I'd want this guy to look, um, that, you know, I meet him or her, you know, as another person um, that I can learn from. Um, it's not um, I am the helper and this person is the helpee. The other thing I think about social is, justice... Is that, is that because you think it's potentially condescending to view someone that way? I do. And I think uh, in, in going into... Uh, when I lived in New York, I went into Spanish Harlem. I was involved in mentoring a young woman. Now that I'm here, I go into Dorchester each week. Um, and I, I often wonder how I am viewed. And I'm really careful to make sure that you know, I, oh, well, I, to be respectful um, so that uh, I'm not viewed as this person of privilege who is handing out goodies. Why is it so important to you not to appear patronizing in the course of serving other people? It's not just about appearing patronizing. I mean, I don't want to come as a person from that place myself. Each person um, deserves his or her dignity, and um, I, want to res I want to respect that. I want them to respect me as a person. I don't want them to put me in a box because I'm white and live in Back Bay, and I don't want to put labels on them because, you know, they're a person of color who speaks with an accent, maybe, and lives in Dorchester. So. It's very important to me that we relate person to person. I was going to say, I don't think it's a question of being patronizing. Lynn Daly. Social justice is really giving people the opportunity to help them become what they want to be themselves. And just we could have taken our money and started our own after-school program. Instead, we chose to go out into the community and look at programs that various communities feel that they need for themselves and help them to realize that potential. And I think we are who we are. And it's not a question of patronizing or trying to be anything else. We're simply saying, we're here. We have certain resources. We would like to help you. They define the program. They come to us with what their needs are. And then we say whether we can be of help to them or not. It was Andrew Carnegie, the philanthropist and industrialist, who once observed that it's harder to give away money charitably than to earn it in the first place. Conscientious charity does seem to require careful reflection, and giving collectively adds a fascinating dimension to the process. Cassandra Gordon feels it may come easier for women to do philanthropy as a group. Women are caregivers, and um, their emotions are out there. They, they tend to act on them, and it's remarkable in this particular set of circumstances that women who could be doing a lot of other things have chosen to make to put this into their daily schedule, to put this into their monthly schedule. Um, I am sure there must be some men's organizations that do this. We uh, know that one men's organization is funding something. But um, I think that this is a good start. I had to laugh when Cassandra was talking about, uh, I'm sure there are men's organizations like this. I was picturing my husband and some of the other husbands in a group like this, and I was thinking 20 e male egos in there and, and how they 
would have had to have come to the conclusion immediately. They all would have had the right answer, the best answer, and it, it never could have been this kind of rich discussion, I don't think. <laughs> Maybe I see another side at home, but... <laughs> And I have something. Do you mind if I uh, mention? If you know, only if it's as good as that. <laughs> as long as my husband doesn't listen to this station. <laughs> I was thinking uh, for women who might be listening, um, who might have an idea of um, and the energy to create a, or the thought of creating a giving circle in their community. Um, I think it would be very important to at least know that we went into this knowing that equal vesting was essential because no one has a bigger voice, more of a voice, or less. Uh, and the other piece of that is we agreed to a multi-year commitment. We are able to think in uh, long term with our plans and with our organizations we get to know and want to support. We can think in terms of three years anyway when we're making grants or talking with the grantees. Susan Prem in Boston, founder of a giving circle called the Hestia Fund. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern. Special thanks to Adria Goodson. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment on Giving Circles is Humankind Program number 54. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.